0: this is the capitalism and freedom in the 21st century podcast where we talk about economics markets and public policy i'm john Hartley, your host today i'm joined by andrew olman was a partner in Mayor Brown's Washington, D.C. office and a member of their public policy, regulatory, and political law practice. He previously served as deputy director of the White House National Economic Council in the Trump administration, working under both Larry Kudlow and Gary Cohn. Before that, he worked as chief counsel and deputy director of the Senate Banking Committee. Andrew's incredibly knowledgeable in all things regulatory and economic policy related and draws on years of experience in government. Welcome,
1: Andrew. Hi, John. Thanks for having me today.
0: So I want to start by your early career. So uh, you did your undergrad and law school at Washington and Lee. You spent along your early career in Washington, D.C., in various congressional offices, you spent a couple of years working at the Richmond Fed as an associate economist before joining the Senate Banking Committee staff. How did you first get interested in economics and economic
1: policy? Well, I think I was uh, I was that kid who was always interested in history. Um, and so I I kind of devoured history books as a kid, uh, starting with somehow, you know, uh, I got interested in, I think, the American Revolution uh, as a young kid. Um, um in the way that some you know kids fixated on certain things i was that's that's what i got hooked on and then just kind of american history and it just kind of spread from there and i kind of read voraciously as a kid um and then my parents took us to washington dc on one of those classic family trips and um i just had a blast you know exploring learning about congress uh and the white house and what the president did and Supreme court and so that kind of had a natural kind of evolution into understanding kind of how our government works. Uh, uh, and then over time, I think that migrated in just how e- economic policy and that helped explain uh, how government policies uh, are, are designed and which ones are successful, which ones are not. Um, and this, you know, this would have been uh, kind of the, the heyday of the, the Reagan years. Uh, and so I naturally ended up reading, you know, Natural Review was something I got introduced to uh, early. Uh, like a lot of people in my generation on the Republican side, uh, and watching William F. Buckley on the, the firing line as a kid. Uh, and, uh, and so by the time I got, I got to college, I knew I wanted to do something along the lines of politics or economics. Um, I always had a little bit of a business interest too. Um, but those are kind of my main academic interests, and so uh, I ended up working on the Hill for a few years in college, which I just had, a, had a, just a great time with. And then went to you noted the Richmond Fed um, right out uh, undergrad, where I was an econ major and um, just had a great experience there uh, and learned learned just a ton. That's great. And, and you grew up in the Midwest, is that right? Yep, I grew up in Minnesota, kind of okay. northern okay. Minnesota.
0: Got it. So, so was it, uh, were you a bit countercultural, I guess, reading National Review growing up? But were you sort of one of the few sort of, I, I guess, conservatives in your class or?
1: Pretty, it was a pretty democratic area. <laughs> yes, I guess I was a little bit definitely the outlier. I had an uncle who was uh, just a, a great influence on my reading and was very serious about what books I read. Not just necessarily conservative le- leaning, but just making sure I was reading really good stuff. And um, and so I think that also helped, helped, helped fuel it. And then, like I said, I you know had this trip out to D.C. that just kind of really, uh, I think I was 10 at the time, uh, really kind of triggered an excitement for it. And so even though my, you know, my leanings, I think, were uh, more on the conservative side and kind of free market, which we can talk a little bit more, uh, I was just really interested in kind of government and understanding how the world works. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a place that um, uh, was certainly very, very democratic, but I was always comfortable just being, uh, you know, having my own views.
0: Fantastic. You know, many very well-known economic policy hands banks sometime on the Senate Banking Committee. I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize this, that a lot of people go on to – Sort of on the Fed board, or you know, working in the NEC, spend some of their early careers working on the Senate Banking Committee. You worked within the Shelby office, uh, right. Senator Richard Shelby's office, alongside many others who kind of went on to have very distinguished Senate policy careers, like Mark Calabria, who went on to lead the FHFA, and, and, and many others. I'm curious, what was your time like as a you know congressional staff or working on the Senate Banking Committee? Can you explain sort of what some of the key responsibilities of the Senate Banking Committee are?
1: Yeah, I love working on the Banking Committee. Um, it was- uh, it was just a great job for me. Um, the team we had there uh, was uh, just superb. And it was also a unique time to be there because I got there kind of right at the ending of what they call kind of the GSC wars about fights about what to do about the regulation of Freddie and Fannie. And then that quickly moved into the financial crisis of, of 2008 and then kind of the, the Dodd-Frank negotiations and debate about the Dodd-Frank bill. So it was probably the most active time in the committee since the, the New Deal. Um, and so you know, we were right at the center of all that, um, just kind of a little fortuitously. The banking committee is always an interesting place uh, to work because it's the committee that's responsible for overseeing all the federal agencies related to financial services, You know, not only banking agencies, but HUD, the SEC, um, and uh, also, certain parts of treasury, export controls, uh, flood insurance, Interestingly enough, and actually even have a, has a piece in transportation because the overseas transit programs. So there's a pretty broad jurisdiction, and I got to work on a lot of different issues and um, ended up staying you know seven and a half years there, which is pretty long tenure. but I just it was such an interesting place and we had such a good team. And um, so what years put that up in? That seven years. I was what, there from '05
0: to '13. Got it. So, so you're there during the the global financial crisis yep. Yep. and Dodd Frank, sort of the whole aftermath. Uh, you oh, know, the financial regulatory response. Wow, what a time to be there! And I, I guess, like, sort of looking back on it, like, um, any thoughts on sort of the legacy of Dodd Frank here oh, wow. now, like, 12 years later, or the big sort of yeah, evolving, evolving thing?
1: Yeah, I think the critiques of Dodd Frank are. Largely proven to be uh, uh, right on 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 mark, which was that it was a one a big missed opportunity to do real reform of the financial system. Uh, two is it uh, is resulting in another layer of bureaucracy and unnecessary costs on the financial system uh, that isn't necessarily making the system safer. And that, you know, we have a kind of risk now of of really institutionalizing uh, too big to fail. And that has a real danger in skewing our markets over the longer term. Now, certainly there's certain aspects of the financial system that certainly needed to be reformed post global financial crisis, where capital was done was certainly really one of those areas, derivatives reform. There are a lot of areas that I think there was bipartisan agreement uh, that needed to be reformed.
0: So like um, Basel III capital but, regulation in some respect, I mean, maybe not ideal in terms yeah, we
1: of... Talk, we can talk about the details of capital regulations, which has now recently gotten a little bit more complicated. But I think it was clear that the system was undercapitalized going into 2008. And that there were some regulatory problems uh, on the housing finance system that hadn't been addressed and needed to be um, so but there was, again, pretty strong bipartisan support for a lot of those provisions, but I think the controversy around the CFPB. and uh, in particular, in some of the credential regulatory authorities and how institutions are regulated uh, is still problems that uh, we haven't really figured out how to get the right balance on.
0: Totally, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see how uh, you know, the CFPB, the you know, through Financial Protection Bureau, Elizabeth Warren's so-called brainchild, has kind of evolved over time and and, and been uh, you know, been used in different ways. Um, you know, for for a whole number of things. Like I can think of. Uh, Things like uh you know income share agreements are something that I think the Biden administration really doesn't like. And the CFPB has been uh um you know suing a number of uh income share share agreement um providers. Um and so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting how, how uh you know the uh, the legacy of of uh, of Dodd Frank, and, and we'll get back into some of that later, uh, you know, banking uh regulation and, and reforms. I want to now sort of fast forward to you joining the White House. You joined the White House National Economic Council in February 2017, right at the beginning of the Trump administration. And for those, I guess, that aren't aware, the NEC, uh, you know, was created in the early 1990s, but sort of grew out of a few other predecessors of sort of handling uh, economic policy um, coordination within the White House. And can you explain a little bit how the NEC works within the White House and, and, um, and how it's evolved with other economic policy bodies? Yeah. Like to the Treasury Department and CA, and how did it function within the Trump administration in particular? Because I know sometimes these things can change from administration yeah, to administration. Yeah, it can change
1: a little bit, but for the most part, the NEC has been pretty stable since it's created under the Clinton administration. Uh, and the the purpose of the NEC is to serve as one the coordinator of economic policy decision making uh, for the White House. Uh, right under you know Article Two, the President leads the executive branch, so. He's the one ultimately responsible for all decisions uh, being made in the uh, in the executive branch. And there needs to be a process for determining which decisions need to go up and have the president formally um, be decided upon, uh, which ones, uh, you know, other senior officials um, can provide guidance, knowing already where the president's positions are. So there's a lot of meetings to making sure that there's coordinating um, kind of the pre- president's policies throughout uh, throughout the throughout the administration, it also does a function in, in helping devise policy, in bringing um, the different uh, different um, uh, officials together, relevant officials throughout the executive branch together, to determine uh, you know what uh, policies the administration should pursue, um, and that uh, process usually requires a presidential sign off because usually the stuff that is in the White House uh are the you know kind of most important issues right there's only so many hours and a lot of decisions to be made you have to make sure it's the important ones so there's a lot of uh, a lot of meetings uh, about what direction policy should go making sure the president's informed on decisions briefing the president briefing you know i spent a lot of my time briefing the um director of the national economic council and then also working with the other policy councils in the white house uh, because there's some overlapping jurisdiction uh, the National Security Council is better uh, better known, um, serves very similar function for foreign policy. There's also the Domestic uh, Policy Council. Hando's kind of, uh, again, this name uh, signifies the uh, traditional domestic policies. Uh, and there's, uh, so you spend a lot of time, particularly when I was deputy, kind of coordinating with the other policy councils to make sure everybody knows what's going on and where we're going and the appropriate sign-offs are being obtained. So it's a, it's a very interesting Place to do, just a fantastic place to do economic policy.
0: That is is fascinating, and also and what uh, you know, a fascinating time to be at the NEC, and uh, you know, in particular in early 2020, you know, the COVID pandemic hit, and you were very involved in the U.S. economic policy response to COVID 19, the CARES Act, uh, some of the su- subsequent economic policy response as well. Can you explain what your role was as deputy director and and you know, also, I want to get into what you think some of the CARES Act's sort of biggest successes and failures were. But can you sort of explain, like sort of take us into the room or some of the rooms that you were in, uh, in, in helping to set up and, and sort of get the CARES Act going? Um, and, and can you explain maybe some of the details of the CARES Act as well? I mean, there are there a lot of pieces, you know, from you know, stimulus checks. You know, unemployment insurance expansion Yeah, you know, there was obviously um, all this uh sort of small business oriented paycheck protection program grants or you know forgivable loans can you explain like how did that all come together and what was the you know the thinking around that being the optimal policy response at the time
1: well they the answer well, there was a lot there was a lot there John so let me uh unpack it uh, first is the deputy director of the NEC handles the day-to-day management of the NEC the NEC is A a pretty small organization, Um, and so, uh, but it has uh, so each of its each of its staff members have a pretty significant amount of authority over their issues. And the way we were structured, and I think it's similar for most White Houses, we had uh, you know a special assistant to the president who handles tax policy, one who handled telecom, one who handled agriculture, one who handled healthcare, financial services, uh, infrastructure transportation. You can see kind of the big sectors of the economy. And the deputy's job is to make sure each of them is, uh, you know, understand what each of them is is doing (laughs) and giving them direction on uh, where the director and and ultimately the president want policy to move and how they are supposed to help coordinate policy throughout the administration. Um, And also just hearing from them, The you know, uh, certainly there's a lot of direction that kind of comes from the White House, but there's also a lot of information that comes in from the executive branch uh, uh, to inform the White House of what's what's happening and also looking for guidance. So there's a constant stream of information and the deputy director's real job there is to help manage that flow. And then also, again, as I mentioned earlier, help coordinate with the other po- policy uh, councils on issues that have overlapping interest amongst the councils. So um, that's generally the structure. The um, covid presented a particularly uh unique and challenging uh uh policy area or policy response to put together uh, because it involved first and foremost uh a health crisis and you know normally when you think about the most recent economic crises they involve something within the financial sector you know 2008 you know Put it simply you had a lot of bad mortgages that were impact uh, that were pervasive throughout the financial system and had had to be addressed in some some way you know you can have an inflation scare uh, all right you can have a you know trade dispute um, um, you know a recession right these are things that are kind of the traditional economic uh, problems or crises but generally we have a playbook and also are things that are largely handled with Uh, within the financial regulatory economic policy uh, realm. With COVID though, the front lines on addressing the core problem are outside, right? It's the public health officials. And so for for us, we knew that it was pretty clear early on there was gonna be an economic impact, Um, but it was also, we were not the ones who would be on the front lines of addressing the root cause, right? Which is, you know, how to figure out how to get vaccines, understand how to uh, prevent transmission, that sort of, uh, those sorts of really important um, uh, public health response. What we had to do instead was think about what are the secondary effects and what areas of the economy are gonna be impacted the most, which workers um, are likely to be impacted the most and think about what what type of response would be needed um, uh, to to mitigate some of these adverse effects that were about to hit the economy because of the the pandemic. There was just a great team that I work with on a lot of these issues uh, on the economic side, you know, certainly a team at the White House, um, uh, at at Treasury, uh, the Small Business Administration, Commerce Department, who all, had certain areas uh, ideas and um uh and certain authorities that, that they could u- utilize to help um have a, help um, respond to the crisis and then also i think the u.s senate uh, did a great job in helping come up with a a means for congress to quickly consider legis- a legislative response and one thing that's really striking and i think i'm quite proud of about the cares act is that that piece of legislation was passed before really the data had even come out, showing how significant an impact the COVID was having on the economy. And uh, you know, as you know, if you look at the data, uh, historical data now for most economic uh, uh, you know series, there's um, a sharp drop in a, uh, uh, in 2020 that really skews all data on the charts, right?
0: Absolutely, um, on the
1: employment side absolutely and it you how significant it was and the fact that uh we were able to be pro- proactive uh is pretty remarkable the you know we often talk about in economic policy right i remember still in my econ classes the idea that you want policy to be um looking ahead and attempting to be providing support uh, as it's needed and not you know, passing legislation after, after the crisis has already uh, occurred and you end up wasting a lot of money that way and not being effective. And that, you know, unfortunately that happens too much in in economic policy because it just takes too long to formulate and events move fast. But in this case, we were able to get it out early. And I think, you know, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that there are millions of people who really benefited and were able to get, uh, help, uh, um, that legislation helped bridge the real economic, uh, storm that we went, went through and, and kind of emerged the other side, um, um and helped the economy really emerge on the other side, a lot more robust than it otherwise would have been.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fascinating just to, to think, I remember in March of 2020, so many, you know, service sector, you know, uh, you know, part-time, you know, retail, um, or, or restaurant workers, you know, lost their jobs instantly. And, and, uh, it's incredible just the uh um, you know how high you know the unemployment rate went very you know very quickly and and of course it came back down very quickly as well but um you know so much happening uh in such a short span of time it's it's really amazing uh you know how quickly um you know a coordinated you know policy response was um uh able to be put together and I, I think that's maybe something that uh people don't quite uh appreciate um as much so so, like I I know there's there's some stories like I think of of, uh how that I guess PPP came together uh and I know that like that was um in part um you know uh that was using the Small Business Administration and there there were a lot of uh I I guess on this topic of coordination and getting things out the door you you had the CARES Act was you know passed uh you know in in late March of, of 2020 but then there were sort of a number of questions about, you know, how quickly could you actually get, you know, that economic relief out to people? And, you know, there were certain things like, you know, whether, you know, the stimulus checks could be paid out through direct deposit, um, you know, versus uh, sent in the mail and, and the direct deposit would be much faster and using, for example, people's banking information from their tax returns. And obviously, you know, PPP took some period of time, to get out um through uh through the banking system, which is how the you know the small business administration um you know uh administered those um uh those sort of giveable loans. I'm curious like what you think about the, the implementation side
1: of the CARES Act and, and and where were you um sitting sort of amidst all, all of that. Yeah so one thing I, I've really learned about working in the White House, which is the White House does not do implementation, right? And it, that's what you leave the departments and agencies for, and there are times in U.S. history where the White House has sought to manage um, particular programs, and usually it doesn't work, work out well because it, the personnel involved and expertise is not in house, right? It's someplace else, so it's very hard to do. So I think where we saw it is, uh, we had really good teams um, uh, on the you know SBA and Treasury who were. Very capable in getting these programs up and running. There's a lot of work, as you point out. There's a lot of technical difficulties in doing some of these programs so quickly. Some worked faster than expected. Others took more time. Some of that is just the nature of responding to a very unexpected crisis. And certainly, you know, as I look back, there are lots of areas where I probably have things changed and modified, and you know, things you would not, you would do differently. You, one doesn't have the time and It's very easy to look back retrospectively and say, well, we would have done things differently. But I think overall, the team did a pretty good job of taking these programs and getting the legislation passed and then getting them up and running. You know, as you want, PPP, I think, was a good example. Uh, figuring out how to handle the increased in unemployment benefits with another another complicated program to actually set up, um, but ultimately these programs were uh, within a reasonable amount of time were up and running.
0: That's fascinating. I do want to talk a little bit more about you know both not only the sex- successes but also sort of some of the failures, you know, potential failures here too, uh, or, or or maybe ha- how you think things may have been done differently, sort of knowing what we know now and and, and the whole experience that was sort of had. And in particular, so I, I want to talk a little bit about inflation as well, since it's, yeah. you know, in, in 2022 and 2023, very front and center issue. Um, you know, now in late 2023, we're seeing inflation sort of finally receding. Um, but, you know, over the past few years, you know, we've seen some of the, uh, some of the highest inflation rates since the 1980s, i'm curious like to what degree do you think that you know government stimulus ranging from you know the cares act uh you know the four hundred dollar you know uh four hundred dollars a week of the pandemic unemployment uh insurance supplement um on top of you know replace uh wages you know that you know ppp uh to um you know stimulus checks to um you and and subsequent sort of top-ups the american rescue plan you know the arp you know things the stimulus that was you know, continued um, throughout the Biden administration. I'm curious, you know, to what degree do you think that, you know, maybe government stimulus sort of overdid it? And to what degree uh, do you think that uh, the inflation that we've been experiencing over the past few years has something to do with um with government policy, and and there, there's others, you know, there are some people that take the view that you know it's it's largely a supply chain issue, and and that uh, government stimulus had very little to do with it. Um, so maybe it's you know it's not a monocausal answer, and it's it's multiple things. But I'm curious what your view is on on this.
1: Yeah, so I would say, well, a couple observations. First, this just shows on how difficult it is to finally tune in this economy. Um, you know when. We think of, you know, clearly in academic settings where you think about, well, you know, if only we had policymakers were able to, you know, increase, uh, reduce taxes by X percent and increase government spending by 4 percent, you know, that will get the economy to a perfectly adjusted equilibrium that, you know, and uh, we'll have full employment and low inflation. And this is something that policymakers have the tools uh, to do. I think you know this experience to me just reinforced the belief that it is very hard to do that. Um, thing, the economy is just too dynamic. Policy, uh, even under the best of situations, um, you know, will involve some um, some delays. And you know, here we were about as fast as could 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 be expected. Um, but certainly, you know, more time would have probably helped us improve the calibration of the, of the programs. Um, it's just the, the realities of, of the world that it's very hard to calibrate these programs correctly. Uh, second is
0: the coordination
1: is also very challenging, and it puts policymakers, I think, in, in uh, forces policymakers to make some really tough decisions. And you, know, you can look at where the Fed was sitting, and they saw certainly saw this huge increase in government spending deficit uh, uh, expanded pretty. <laughs> uh you know really unprecedented levels and you know you have to go back to world war ii to see these debt levels um so you had a lot of government debt going out a lot of spending that um but you also had the economy collapsing too right so you'd think rates would be going down but the the response proved to be very successful probably more successful than people expected at getting the economy up and running again And as you noted economic growth jumped back very quickly the following quarter and suddenly, the economy starts to starts to get back on track faster than expected, but you still have this large increase in government spending and debt, I- debt issuance, you know, which by itself is a very inflationary Im- impact. But the Fed, at the same time, has to figure out, you make the judgment call on, uh, with an incredible amount of uncertainty about where the economy is, given that this pandemic is still going on. And so it's not surprising to me that through all of that, you know, you know, very simply you know, big increases in money supply, suddenly big increases in demand, right? Whether you're Keynesian or monetists, there are reasons to see that inflation coming. Um, but it's also in real time, hard to, hard to react fast enough, and know which, which to do. So it's not surprising that it would do that. Um, you know, certainly I think the fed was too slow to respond and, that's probably what, that's a big reason why we we uh, got the inflation bout, uh, bout that we did. Um, I do think one of the lessons I learned both in '08 and in '20 is the really the value of uh, inflation expectations and having anchored expectations by the American public. If you look back in '08, there was a lot of expectations uh, or concerns that uh, inflation was going to surge in the same way, but it turned out. Inflation expectations were so anchored that the inflation rate was a lot stickier and the U.S. government had a lot more flexibility to respond without creating an inflation problem or at least uh, having to respond to one at the same time um, than was expected. I think in 2020, was the same case and that um, people had confidence that even after 2008, inflation didn't surge and that meant the federal government could take a big response here. The Fed could be more aggressive on lowering rates to respond without sparking an inflation problem. And that certainly helped policy. The fact that then we suddenly did see this bout of inflation, I think does kind of shows to me that the potential for inflation was, was always there. And once those expectations got kind of unlocked, right, that they can change pretty, a little bit faster than than we than we expected. And that has made policy making over the last couple of years very, very challenging, right? You have a large jump in inflation that the Fed now has to respond to, while you also have a large fiscal deficit. You know, these are you know, and Congress really should be starting to think about how to get its finances under control at the same time. Not an optimal situation. So it's a little bit of a long, a little rambling answer on it. But um, certainly, the Fed needed to get more, should have been more aggressive and probably got a little lax because of the, of the success in 2008 and up till then 2020 and that no inflation had, 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 uh, come, uh, had emerged.
0: Absolutely. And I think there's a number of former Fed governors like you know, Randy Quarles who were on the, uh, the actual the Fed board at the time. And even they would say now, and and have said publicly uh, that uh, you know the Fed should have started raising rates earlier, uh, as early as uh, you know the the autumn of twenty twenty one when it became clear that the uptick inflation in inflation was not just a a story about uh, used car prices going up due to you know supply chain uh, you know supply constraints, but uh, but you know you started to see. Um, rents and and other items in the price basket really start to surge, and and that that, that was really the key moment uh, when uh, the the Fed should have started to raise interest rates, not um, yeah you know, six months later in, uh, in in the first quarter of uh, of 2023. Um, I, I want to now pivot to uh, financial regulation, specifically banking regulation. I kind of want to get back to that and, and talk yep. a little bit more about the legacy of Dodd Frank. You, know, you spent a lot of time on Senate banking and and, uh, and have a lot of expertise in this Um, is, and I I think also, you know, having, um, you know, sort of legal background, I I think, um, also um, just brings um, so much um, expertise to the sort of the realm of of regulation, um, which is wonderful. So there was a lot of momentum, you know, I feel like throughout the 2020, uh, the 2010s, on the Republican side, a lot of momentum in the 2010s to repeal Dodd-Frank, or or certain elements of Dodd-Frank, you know, while, you know, some like. You know, capital rules for banks um you know banks were over, uh, over levered in, in 2008 a lot of sort of um bipartisan sort of agreement on that there you know there are these other parts that Republicans didn't like you know the Volcker rule um some of the implementation of uh of uh, the dodd frank act you know cfpb um and you know th- there's also a lot of scrutiny about, about uh, the impact of uh, regulatory cost on smaller banks uh that yeah you know, there weren't any uh, new de novo banks created for, for quite a few years in part due to, you know, the regulatory constraints. Um, I'm curious. Um, There's also some changes to 13.3 that some people didn't like. Um, you had know, the lender of last resort. I mean that sort of put more power in the hands of Congress. Some people I I think even uh on the left didn't really like that. So we have Trump then elected amidst you know this 2010s you know, momentum to repeal certain elements of Dodd Frank. Trump gets elected in 2016. A Republican House and Senate is also elected that year. And I'm curious, you know, you know, in that time period, you know, where there are two years of you know, uh Republican, you know, White House and full congressional control, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that came out of uh, of that in terms of you know financial uh you know regulatory reform or or you know some form of deregulation was really just changing um you know the sifi uh, uh threshold to exempt um yeah you know, some some firms i'm curious if, if you could sort of maybe speak to a little bit about what the that push which was led by uh and then um house uh uh you know, f- financial uh services chair uh Jeff pencerling i'm curious like to me that it seems like and uh, uh, and a lot and, yes of course and, and uh senator Crapo on the bank Committee. i'm curious like What happened to all that momentum and why did so little get done to peel back some elements of of Dodd-Frank like Republicans had promised for so long in the 2010s after they actually got into power?
1: Yeah. So, well, I mean, one word is the filibuster. Right, in the Senate, you have to have 60 votes to move legislation. And uh, when the Democrats passed Dodd-Frank, they had the 60 votes, and they passed it largely on a partisan basis that, that way. Uh, Republicans uh, during that time period didn't. And therefore, there had to, um, so if anything, the expectation probably really was that nothing was gonna happen, because there was no way Republicans and Democrats would get a deal together to, to get the 60 votes to move legislation. But I think we were able to get a bill through for a couple of reasons. One is we focused on the area, one of the areas that needed the most most attention and one that I think uh, even supporters of Dodd-Frank realized uh, needed to be reformed, which was how regulations were tailored. Uh, uh, these new enhanced prudential regulations were tailored based on size so that you don't have a $2 trillion bank Uh, being regulated the same way as a $300 billion bank, you know, certainly billions in dollars is a a lot, but there's a big magnitude (laughs) between those two types of institutions and the types of activities that they engage in, uh, where they conduct their activities, it's a very, there's a lot of differences there. And the danger that I think has been well recognized is that if you want to have a diverse banking system, where you have large banks, small banks, intermediate banks, banks with a lot of different business Uh, models, which I think is really important for uh, an economy like the United States, as large it is and as dynamic it is, we can't have a a cookie cutter approach to banks where they all kind of look alike, they have the same kind of products, same business models, uh, is going to result in certain segments of the economy not getting the credit um, they they need um, and also not as efficient management of risk. Uh, there's an element of of having diversity in business models and risk management that provides some resiliency to the system. And that Dodd-Frank, e- even the original Dodd-Frank recognized this problem, that there's some language in there, but it needed to be the implementation needed to be improved. And Congress had to clarify more what it wanted to see on this so that we didn't suddenly have the financial system very barbell, where you have, say, six really big financial institutions and then a whole bunch of really, really small institutions and nothing in between. Um, it also there's a competitive element is that these banks from say 50 billion up to 700, 800 billion, provide a lot of competition for the system. You know, certainly that means small banks can grow and become that are successful can grow and then compete with these these banks. But they also those banks also compete with the large GSIBs and can potentially grow to challenge them. And so it really brings a, a really healthy competitive element to our our system. And I think members of both parties recognize that there wasn't sufficient tailoring to account for these, these differences in business models and banks. Again, I think there's a common interest in making sure all these banks are well-regulated, well-capitalized, and appropriately regulated. We're just trying to make sure that they're appropriately regulated based on the types of activities that they engage them. And as a result, you know, we were able to get a, a package together that I think it was 17 Democrats ended up voting for. So we had a really strong bipartisan coalition. I think it's a good lesson, too, is that particularly in financial regulation, in my experience, usually the bipartisan legislation is one that turns out to be more durable. If you look at Dodd-Frank, the areas that were most controversial, a lot of them no longer exist because subsequent Congresses came back and changed the law or they were declared unconstitutional by the courts. You know, there's been a lot of changes to Dodd-Frank based on the approach it it was passed. And the 2155 bill, I think, has endured pretty well because it had such a bipartisan approach. Uh, And it was also just simply common sense, you know, that we want to make sure regulation is appropriate based on the nature of the banking activities a bank is engaged in as opposed to some kind of cookie cutter here are here's a whole list of what every bank uh things that every bank needs to comply regardless of the activities that it's actually engaged with right and there's for a period of time banks had to prove that they were in compliance with the Volcker rule even if they weren't engaged in any proprietary trading right it was it doesn't make any sense
0: mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely
1: so i think it's a good lesson and. in, in And again, our system, actually, here's a bigger point, too, on this, is that our system is designed not to have kind of radical changes, particularly Congress to Congress. It's, It's designed to have change over time based on successive legislative congresses with different majorities and that um, that brings a lot of stability to our system It makes sure that when things are passed they've been usually pretty well vetted it also means that there's a broad geographic um support for for le- for legislation i think overall that served the united that approach has really served the united states well well the filibuster is pretty much key to that uh continuing going forward and um I think really on the conservative side, I know there's always frustration about um, why didn't we achieve achieve bigger successes, right? And uh, the uh, and I fully 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 understand that. But at, at core, it's you have to get the legislative majorities to do that. And um, Democrats have been very successful over the last again 70 years of having several occasions where they were able to actually have the 60 votes needed to do some pretty big bills. And it's been well beyond anybody's current lifetime since Republicans have those kind of majorities.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, it is fascinating, too, to think also some of the bipartisan legislation that's been passed, particularly more so on the spending side, you know, whether it's some appropriation bills or, you know, parts infrastructure bill it you know, just how many you know piece of legislation it has actually drawn quite a few you know Republicans to get to 60 votes you know, this is under uh you know the Biden administration In you know of course you know filibusters uh, you know changing a bit too in, in terms of you know what things uh need yeah. the filibuster and, well, and what don't a
1: point you know just to, to note like this is where the filibuster you know right now there's a movement on the left to undo the filibuster and we may see that in our lifetime here and term actually come come to pass. I think overall It will not be good for um policy because it'll mean mean policy will shift a lot more from congress to congress but from you know republican perspective there are things that wouldn't be doable with the with the filibuster and so this is where i actually think folks on the left sometimes should think about what does it mean when they're not in power and the reverse is also true so it's a more complicated issue than i think most people who've kind of debated that issue assuming you know uh, have really thought And I think banking regulation is a very good example. If the filibuster goes, you will likely see Congress be much more active and prescriptive uh, with um, uh, passing legislation uh, on how institutions should be regulated. And there's probably pros and cons to that.
0: Absolutely. Shift a little bit to regional banks. And it's been you know, several months since Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank you know, were taken to receivership by the FDIC in March of 2023. You know, First Republic Bank was troubled as well, ended up getting acquired by JP Morgan. But you know, it's now several months later. And it seems like the regional bank apocalypse that many were predicting did not happen. And I'm curious, you know, what is your diagnosis of this whole situation? You know, that there's obviously, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had a large fraction of uninsured deposits, there, there was also um, some very serious um, issues around maturity mismatch, significant amounts of interest rate risk that Silicon Valley Bank was taking. This is sort of classic finance 101 mistake. You know, the duration of your assets should equal the liabilities unless you know you want to make some you know big bet on interest rates. And, and it seemed like they had a lot of duration risk and the Fed was raising rates. Um, but I'm curious, like you know, is your take that you know SVB and a couple others, you know, were just sort of a couple of cases of like gross mismanagement and incompetence, or, or you know, do you you know do you buy into this that there is you know some bigger regulatory issue at play? And I think still there's sort of some big questions that need to be addressed, which is somewhat along the lines of the uh, lender of last resort uh, role here, but also. Yeah, you know, how should deposit insurance be reformed going forward? I'm curious Let's what come your out of, thoughts the Lender of
1: on. last resort after this, because I think you know I'm happy to talk about 133 because I think there's some interesting stuff which uh, you've mentioned. So I want to uh, explain a little bit more. But on what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, if you read the you know GL reports about it. It reads very much like a lot of bank failures, uh, particularly if you go back to the SNL crisis where you had a rising interest rate environment and bank, uh, a, a lot of banks misread it or mismanaged it. So it's not surprising that we've had bank failures when the federal funds rate goes from zero to you know um, 5% in the course of a year. Um, what is a little surprising reading it, though, is that the supervisory process, um, uh, it looks like they caught it, but was not... St- was not forceful enough to get any uh, one of the bank to to address it and take actions so it seems like it's a super pretty clearly a supervisory problem here listen that when you have a country of five thousand banks that happens um and this is why i've always been a believer in having strong resolution mechanisms right banks are going to fail as part of uh, how our capitalistic system works uh sometimes bets uh, uh don't pan out and you have losses and bank goes goes belly up. Um, it's impossible to avoid in a healthy financial system from time to time, a, a bank failing. But what you need to have is a really the capabilities to make sure that the failure of one institution doesn't kind of bring down the whole system and that they can't hold the federal government hostage uh, to for a bailout because of the concerns about the wider impact on the economy. And I think what you saw with Silicon Valley Bank was that there are some pretty strong authorities the regulators have. And we've been doing bank failures for a long time in this country. Um, They've been a problem since almost day one, going back to the early republic. I think since the Great Depression, we've gotten a lot better at how to resolve banks without them, them uh, their failures spreading and having serial bank bank failures and bank bank runs. And I think what you saw here was the regulators using the authorities they had to make sure that there was uh, these institutions were re- resolved. There was some market discipline exercise. You saw uh, unsecured creditors and shareholders uh, take losses, um, and it, for the most part stabilized the banking system and prevented it spreading. Now there's issue about how unsecured creditors are treated, but we, that's a more technical issue we can talk about if you want. But overall, you know, my take is is that the response there uh, was exactly how, how Congress anticipated the, the agencies to respond, and I think we should look at that as kind of a, a, a good thing. Now I think that the resolution of institutions is an area that always has to be constantly being um, examined, to make sure that our uh, regulatory system doesn't become outdated by changes in the marketplace, uh, particularly for larger institutions. And I think we've seen, and that was certainly one of the efforts of Dodd-Frank where there was a lot of bipartisan support, is thinking about how we resolve institutions while preserving market discipline and avoiding bailouts, but also making sure there's an orderly resolution. I think that's that's an area that I still think deserves more work, but I was glad to see that in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, that the existing authorities work pretty well. Because after all, these were real traditional banks, almost all the assets were in the bank. So they're not like kind of large uh, financial institutions that have significant assets outside of the bank. Those are much more complicated or as large as you saw with the GSEs and have special government charter missions. That gets a whole other complicated area as well. So um, it looks like Again, we know how to resolve these types of institutions, and they they did appropriately. It it's a fascinating take on, on regional banks. One last question: you know, Section thirteen
0: three, you know, a, a very uh, famous topic. Effectively, the legislation that enables lender of last resort powers on, on the part of uh, the Fed. So, I believe it's thirteen three, the Federal Reserve Act. That's right. It's changed over time a bit, and I'm curious. Um, you know, we're I mean, we're in this world where it seems like there is you know this de facto sort of like too big to fail. Issue where you know, anytime there's you know a, a big financial institution that goes down, or you know, even in this case with you know a regional bank like Silicon Valley Bank, that there are some sort of uh, issues that potential for spread of contagion. Yep. That there needs to be um, some sort of a a backstop. Yep. Um, and, and yeah, there's all these uh, issues. You know things like uh, um, Badgett's rule, which is you know yeah. I, I think yep. uh, you know lend uh, generously in, in these sorts of times, but you know, have some sort of a, a penalty rate. I'm curious, you know, what do you think about the evolution of, of 13.3 lender of last resort too big to fail? Because I do think it is a somewhat recent, you know, phenomenon in the sense that I, I don't think there were as many big sort of bank bailouts, you know, historically speaking, there haven't been sort of the same kind of crises yeah. that we've seen at least since, yeah. uh, since the great depression. But I'm curious, you know, what you think that evolution, you know, whether there's been a positive development, a negative development, and I know there's been some sort of reform that proposals that have been debated for decades now I'm curious what your take is on 133
1: a couple observations first is uh you're right 133 is a great depression era statute that was largely not used. Was really not used um, since the Great Depression until 2008. And there it was used very aggressively to provide assistance to banks, but also to not non-banks. And that's the authority that it, that allows. Um, and then it was used uh, again during in during the pandemic response to the pandemic. And then we saw uh, recently with Silicon Valley Bank. So we now have three episodes of where it's been used, and that's supposed to be the emergency authority for the Fed. But I think you're right to say you know what's going on here. Are we seeing an evolution? Well, one is certainly 2008 and 2020 are the kind of cases where you would think if you were ever going to use thirteen three, you would be. I think the more recent case of Silicon Valley Bank is a more more interesting case, and in, in the, the question is better focused there. And I think that the the answer of what what's really going on is that we don't have as active a discount window uh, uh, as we should. Right? Remember, the Fed was established to provide uh, liquidity to the financial system when you guys had a uh, banking panic, panic or to help with seasonal needs. Right, that goes all the way back to the, f- the founding. Uh, th- since the federal government can. To currency, they wanted to have that elastic currency to make sure that when banks had uh, needs for for money, they were able to get it, and they would pledge collateral uh, to help help them get over kind of short-term uh, liquidity crisis. For a variety of reasons, the discount window has not. Uh, worked as planned. And that means the Fed sometimes feels, uh, has become concerned, and this is what you first saw in 2008, that there wasn't enough liquidity. Um in 2000, 2008, there wasn't just banks who needed liquidity, it was a lot of non banks. so 13.3 seemed appropriate. There was some of that recently with Silicon Valley Bank, but the real target were other banks. And so if it's an appropriate question to say, you know, why are we using 13.3 and not having a better um, 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 discount window? And I think this is an area that needs a lot more thought and attention, I think by the academic community and by policymakers to think of how we can make it work. Right now, going to the the discount window is viewed uh, negatively. There's concerns about stigma by banks that use it, both from a supervisory perspective and also kind of reputational uh, by uh, clients, other banks, um, public sentiment in general. Um, And so there's a real reluctance uh, to use it in these types of crises. So I think this is an area that uh, I think that there's more attention. I mean,
0: it's so fascinating, you know, that this idea that, uh, you know, that there's this sort of lender last resort tool, this discount window there um, that exists, but, uh, you know, banks are are too afraid to use it because, you know, it'll be perceived as, you know, some sort of uh, act of desperation and and that could make their troubles even worse, uh, even though it's supposed to be a lifeline. And so like instead, you know, banks are opting for these sort of like secretly negotiated sort of bailouts and... Uh, that get announced uh,
1: sort of at the you know the 11th hour yeah, and remember we- this go window inherently like a bailout right you you have good collateral you're you're providing the go- government is not taking really any credit ideally not taking any uh, substantial credit risk The thing about thirteen three that really has to be recognized is that when thirteen three is used the way it has been, um, particularly in in twenty and oh eight, is that's a form of credit policy. We're like the Fed's moving away from monetary policy to allocating credit in in the uh, the U.S. economy, and that is the responsibility historically of Congress, right? Favoring which industry and institutions get. Uh, public money. That's something that we've decided would be determined through the democratic process. So it's been, Congress has extended that authority to the Fed for emergency uses, but you know, as you read the language, it's very clear that this is a break the glass. We really don't want you to be using this because your job is not credit allocation. And uh, Fed chairs, particularly uh, since Bernanke, have all kind of recognized that and have been very careful to um, uh, uh, be closely consult Congress on how these programs are established because they are moving outside of their, their 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 traditional realm and the real issue there is that for the Fed is that once the Fed starts picking winners and losers it's moving from a technocrat type agency to a very political one and that can result in questions of legitimacy and politicization of the Fed that can uh, in its worst case, uh, come back and haunt it for the credibility on its monetary policy, right? So uh, that's Absolutely. why I think one of the better reforms of Dodd-Frank was you have to have the Treasury Secretary sign off on those loans. That way you have someone who's directly accountable to the president, somebody who's elected by the entire country, at least have some uh, accountability for how that money is spent. Because remember, when you're using 13.3, uh, even though it's supposed to be on good collateral act, you're still taking um, some cr- some credit risk. And as we saw in 2000, probably 2008, there's some real risk um, of losses there. Um, so it's very appropriate, in my view, to have that democratic accountability. That's a reasonable balance. You know, it is hard for Congress to quickly... Uh, allocate money in the way that the Fed can do it through 13-3. So having that emergency authority there um, can be very useful, but it's also the risks that come along with using that. Particularly from a demo, uh, democ- democratic perspective, being consistent with democratic principles is really important. Plus, is you, you know kind of going to the issues you talk about or we're talking about, which is it creates expectations of bailouts and creates moral hazard in, in the, the economy. That's also there. So it's um, you know its use, like a lot of big policy decisions. Certainly has can have some benefits, but they don't come without real costs that have to be recognized. Absolutely, and I
0: know some folks have, have you know, criticized that thirteen three change that it, you know it, at some level might impede you know, the lender of last resort sort of function to act as quickly as it, it might need to in a you know, banking crisis if it, it happens you know super quickly. But yeah, you know, again, you know, I guess it's a it's a trade off. Yeah, you know, how much accountability? Yeah, do my experience you want?
1: that's it's actually the reverse, which is. The Treasury Secretary then can take the political accountability for the use of that money. And when Congress calls up, um, w- wants to understand what happened, it allows for somebody who's, again, uh, directly accountable to the president to come before the country and explain how the money is being un- used. Again, the as much as the economic profession really focuses a lot on the Fed and, you know, there's a little bit of the cult of the Fed, In a crisis, it's actually not the Fed chair who's the center, it's the treasury secretary, right? That is the leader of the executive branch uh, in responding to crises. And um, that's the person who should be, in terms of what we talked before, the center of uh, uh, executing the response of the federal government. That's the appropriate official who should be leading 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 those efforts. Again, because this is public money that's on the line and you want to have democratically accountable officials um, um, uh, responsible. It also, I think, is a nice division of labor because it allows the Fed to still continue to focus on monetary policy, which is we talked about earlier, really important to continue to get right, and it's a very technical policy making there that Congress has been very clear about what the, the, the goals are and, um, and, and how the Fed's supposed to operate. Fed continues to, to focus on mon- getting monetary policy right while then supporting the Treasury Secretary uh, as uh, the secretary um, uh, formulates the response of the administration, Th-
0: those are some excellent points. Um, uh, truly,
1: uh, division think- of labor turns out to be good not only in uh, in theory in economics, but also in practice when responding to the financial crisis. Absolutely, if you look yes. At how our system works too. Now, there's one last kind of point on that is then you have the FDIC, which largely has the resolution authorities. So, I think one of the other reforms I would say was it's been good over of from 2008 was that rather than having the fed try and manage restructuring uh entities those entities now under new title II will go to the fdic and that will be the federal government's resolution expert right and um that means it will have uh can make sure it has the on staff you know the best experts in how to resolve complicated financial institutions all in one place it also again gets it away from the Fed and the, and the Treasury. Those are a very um, um, intensive work um, um, that um, uh, again helps uh, helps divide the labor up of how to respond. You know, Treasury comes out, figures out how to respond. Which who has to get money? The Fed makes sure uh, monetary policy is going in the right direction. Lender of last resort functions working, and then. The FDIC is dealing with the institutions that that um, have failed or, or near failing. That's not a that's not a bad way to work it out. And particularly if we're going to have a financial system that has so many regulators, which I think is still a problem. But at least we here we've taken one of the problems of our systems and turned it into a little bit of virtue. Absolutely,
0: no, that's such a great point. Not on, on all those fronts. Yeah, divisional labor, clear objectives for uh, for various regulators. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Such an interesting conversation, Andrew, it's been a real honor uh, to have you on here uh, talking about your experience and and thoughts on all these uh, really important matters uh, across uh, economic policy to banking regulation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Today, our guest was Andrew Olman, who is a partner in Mayor Brown's Washington, D.C. office and a member of their public policy regulatory and political law practice. He previously served as deputy director of the White House National Economic Council. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. Thanks so much for joining us. You